O God, with all our hearts, we sing our alleluias to you. We have not gathered as a defeated community. We have gathered with a certain hope in the risen Christ. How then should we live, Holy Father, on this Sabbath of this Holy Weekend? Speak and teach us through Holy Scripture. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Be seated, please. The whole world knows the opening salvo to Charles Dickens' classic, A Tale of Two Cities, and I know you know it. The opening words. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Somebody had a T-shirt printed up once, probably an English major, with these words on it. I wish you would make up your mind, Mr. Dickens. Was it the best of times or the worst of times? It could scarcely have been both. Oh, really? Come on, let's be honest. Are there not mornings when you awaken and you realize it is the best of times, it is the worst of times? Your eyes, blurry, finally recognize in that instant of gratitude that you are alive. And for some of us, that's a great achievement just to wake up that way. But in the very next flash, isn't this true? There comes a memory of yesterday or an anxiety of tomorrow or maybe a a numinous dread about what you face today. And then all of a sudden, our stomachs twist into a throbbing knot. Come on, Dickens got it right for most of us, didn't he? It was the best of times, it was the worst of times because for most of us, that's nearly all the time, isn't it? Guess what? It was no different on that early Sunday morning long, long ago. And I want to read that story again with you. Pull out your Bible, please, and open it to the Gospel of St. Mark. The only Gospel story that doesn't end with the good news. The Gospel of Mark. Go to the resurrection story, Mark chapter 16. I'll be in the New International Version. You can read whatever translation you brought. If you didn't bring a Bible, please follow along with us. There's a pew Bible right in front of you. It's the New King James, and you can turn to page 687. I want you to read the Easter story, very unique, only in the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 16. Let's pick it up in verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But, verse 4, when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified? He is risen. He is not here. Look, the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter. He's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now verse 8, the ending. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. 
It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. And they fled for fear. Not a very cheery ending to the resurrection story, is it? Which is why this verse has created quite a stir among New Testament scholars. There's a debate today simply because the earliest and the most reliable of the Greek manuscripts, the actual language that Mark wrote in, the earliest manuscripts all end in ver- with verse 8. What kind of an ending is that? Who would want to end the story that way? I mean, look at verse 8 again. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Matthew doesn't want to end that way. Luke doesn't want to end that way. John doesn't want to end that way. So why does Mark do it? What would happen if, in fact, that were Mark's ending? What if Mark ended with the pronouncement, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times? After all, it certainly was for those early morning women, was it not? I mean, there they are making their way through that that gray gloom that precedes the sunrise. And for a few moments, they allow worry to assuage their grief as they anxiously fuss over how they're going to embalm their deceased master. After all, the sepulcher stone is huge, and who's going to move that stone? He's dead. The one they loved and followed, they know that Friday's history cannot be denied. He is dead. It reminds me of a piece out of New York Times nationally syndicated columnist Russell Baker's autobiography. Title of the autobiography, Growing Up. I want to read a moment of his life to you. Listen to this. Five years old, he's out in the woods playing alone when his cousins come and announce to him that his daddy has just died. All right? Here's the story as he records it. Your father's dead, Kenneth said. It was like an accusation that my father had done something criminal and I came to my father's defense. He is not, I said. But, of course, they didn't know the situation. I started to explain. He was sick in the hospital. My mother was bringing him home right now. He's dead, Kenneth said. His assurance slid an icicle into my heart. He is not either, I shouted. He is too, Ruth Lee said. They want you to come home right away. I started running up the road screaming. He is not. It was a weak argument. They had the evidence as I hurried home crying. He is not. He is not. He is not. I was almost certain before I got there that he was. And I was right. Arriving at the hospital that morning, my mother was told that he had died at 4 a.m. in acute diabetic coma. He was 33 years old. When I came running home, my mother was, not still, was still not back from Frederick, but the women had descended on our, on our house as women there did in such times and were already busy with the house cleaning and the cooking that were Morrisonville's ritual response to death. With a thousand tasks to do, they had no time to handle a howling five-year-old, so I was sent to the opposite end of town to Bessie Scott's house. Poor Bessie Scott. All afternoon she listened patiently as a saint while I sat in her kitchen and cried myself out. For the first time I thought seriously about God between sobs. I told Bessie that if God could do things like this to people, then God was, a, God was hateful and I had no more use for him. And Bessie told me about the peace of heaven and the joy of being among the angels. This argument failed to quiet my rage. God loves us just like his own children, Bessie said. If God loves me, why did he make my father die? Bessie said I would understand someday, but she was only partly right. That afternoon, though I couldn't have phrased it this way then, I decided that 
God was a lot less interested in people than anybody in Morrisonville was willing to admit. That day I decided that God was not entirely to be trusted. After that, I never cried again with any real conviction, nor expected much of anyone's God except indifference, nor loved deeply without fear that it would cost me deeply in pain. At the age of five, I had become a skeptic and began to sense that any happiness that came my way might be the prelude to some grim cosmic joke. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times because in that gloom of Sunday dawn, they knew that he was dead. Go back to verse 4 in Mark 16. Pick it up there again. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? But go tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. They flee in fear. You know why? Because they're jammed in between the historical fact he is dead and the hysterical possibility he's alive. Jammed just like you and I are crammed into that concluding line that Mark chooses to end the story of Christ's resurrection. Let me show you how intentional Mark is about cramming us in between those two realities. Let me put it on the screen for you here. This is the verse. This is verse 8, but we'll we'll put some parentheses into it. Trembling and bewildered. Now, the Greek word for bewildered, you see it there, the transliteration, ekstasis. What English word comes from ekstasis? Of course, ecstasy. So, trembling and filled with ecstasy. You get the picture? Trembling and filled with ecstasy. The women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now, the Greek word for afraid, phobeo, from whence comes our word phobia. Caught between ecstasy and phobia. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It's the story of all of our times, ladies and gentlemen. Caught and jammed between the tension of opposites. All of us. That's what life is. Have you noticed? He's dead. He is not. He's dead. He is not. Fear. Faith. Grief. Joy. Defeat. Triumph. Darkness. Life. War, peace, anxiety, trust. He's dead. He's alive. Have you noticed it is still the best of times and the worst of times in 2006, huh? Mark does not resolve life's tension of opposites. Instead, he draws us into the vortex of their reality with that single text. Let me read it again. Verse 8, trembling and bewildered. The women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. I wish you would make up your mind, Mr. Dickens. Was it the best of times or the worst of times? It could scarcely have been both. Oh, no, Mr. T-shirt writer, it can be both. And that is the truth about death, isn't it? What our late-night comedians laugh at. What MTV and hip-hop rage against. 
They raged like Dylan Thomas. You remember Dylan Thomas's words, do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Death and life, the, the ultimate tension of opposites. Death. Let me put that word on the screen for you. Death. Nobody likes that word. Don't just say it. Bad luck, bad luck. Say it out loud to yourself. Death. Death. This last week, at the Zacharias Musawi trials death penalty phase, prosecutors played for the first time in public the flight recorder of the fated hijacked United Flight 93 that was taken down in Shanksville, Pennsylvania on September 11. For 31 minutes and 12 seconds, the jurors listened to voices pleading to live. I've read a transcript, of, a partial transcript. I don't want to die. I don't want to die. Who does? Raise your hand if you want to die. There's nobody that wants to die, not when you're thinking clearly. Death. That boy agrees. Death. We gathered, by the way, in this quiet sanctuary three days ago to remember the life of Sylvia Kunsa. Wolfgang, you came up here and you placed those flowers in memory of your lifelong companion. Sixty-two years old she was. Wife of Wolfgang, one of our faculty, who while, while she was sleeping beside him a week ago, unexpectedly, without warning, fell asleep in death. Sylvia had pursued a graduate degree in cultural anthropology at UCLA, focusing on Native American studies. She wanted to concentrate on folklore and mythology. Isn't that right? Sylvia knew the truth, that there isn't a culture on earth that hasn't trembled before the abyss of death. Death is a universal fear. That's why we don't say it. Don't, 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 don't say the word. Sylvia knew the myths and meta-narratives we humans have woven for ourselves to satisfy our gnawing uncertainty about death's ends. Death's end. Who wants to die, huh? Sylvia didn't want to die last Tuesday night. She didn't plan on dying. She had one beloved husband, two wonderful children, and one precious granddaughter. She had every reason to live. Who wants to die? But we do. And we will. All of us. If time lasts long enough, somewhere on this planet one day, there will be an obituary with your name in it. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Caught between the tension of life, life's opposites, ladies and gentlemen, how then shall we live? How shall we live? The American writer F. Scott Fitzgerald. I want you to wrap your mind around that sentence you see on the screen. The test of a first-rate intelligence he concluded, the test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposed ideas in mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. That's a rather ponderous thought. I'm going to leave it up on the screen. Just watch that on that screen now because with your permission, as a consequence of Mark's resurrection tale, story, and narrative, I want to adjust that sentence. Watch the adjustment of the sentence. See if you concur. The test of a lasting faith. 
is the ability to hold two opposed ideas in mind at the same time and still retain the ability to trust. For a few desperate hours on that Sunday after Calvary, these first visitors to Christ's garden tomb had to hold intention two opposed ideas in their minds. He is dead, he's alive. He is dead, he's alive. They had to hold it in tension. They can't both be true, but they both were true. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times, which is why faith must go on trusting no matter the tension of opposites. You just can't let go. It's got to be true. Put that sentence up again, please. It has to be true, doesn't it? The test of lasting faith is the ability to hold two opposed ideas in the mind at the same time and still retain the ability to trust. Life is difficult. God is love. Try to put those two together. I have fear. I have faith. I doubt. I trust. I sin. He saves. I shall descend to the grave. He shall return for me one day. How do you put them together? They're opposites. It's the genius of Holy Scripture. It radiates with that tension. And in fact, that tension shines the brightest in the truth of the resurrection. Watch this. Let me put four verses on the screen for you. I want you to notice the tension inherent in these four promises. Let's put Job 19 first on the screen. See if you can spot the tension. For I know, Job exclaims, in that excruciating pain that he is enduring. I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. Watch this. And after my skin is destroyed, here comes the first tension, my skin is gone. See, after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. How can you do that? Your skin is destroyed, and yet in your flesh you see God? There's a tension. So Job goes on to exclaim, whom God whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Paul lived with that tension. The famous Romans 6, 623. You remember this tension? For the wage... Say it out loud with me. For the wages of sin is death. Opposite over here. But the other side. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Somehow those tensions have to be brought together. Look at Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. For as in Adam... How many die? As an animal, all die. But look at this. Even so in Christ, all shall be made alive. Life's inherent tensions are rife in Holy Scripture. One more. Let's let Jesus show the riddle to us himself. The tension in the words of Christ as he stands before the sealed sepulcher of one of his closest friends, Lazarus. He says to Martha, John eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though... He may die, he shall live. Which is it? Which is it? Lord Jesus, which is it? And then the tension deepens. Look at the next verse. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait. You just said we're going to die. And now you're saying, shall never die? How do we resolve life's inherent opposites, its tensions? Here's a question for you. Would only fools believe in the resurrection? I think not. I mean, if F. Scott Fitzgerald is right, suggesting the ability to hold two opposed ideas is a sign of a first-rate intelligence, not a fool. 
Especially since it's also the sign of a lasting faith. Faith and intelligence are not opposites. You can have both, which is why the Gospel of Mark ends with both. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. But never forget it, my friends. Here it is. With the risen Christ, the worst of times can yet become the best of times. And that's the truth. That's why we still live in a season of hope. Hope that is powerfully captured in the story that I wish to end with. Ah, this this story moves me every time I read it. It's written by last century's famed anthropologist, Lauren Isley. Great writer, by the way. And I'm indebted to Robert Raines and his wonderful little book, Creative Brooding, for making sure that I found this story. I want to read the story to you. Let me, let, me, let me just set the story up, please. Lauren Isley is a young man at this particular time, and he's out as an anthropologist. He's actually helping <clears throat> collect wild animals and birds. So he's up in the mountains, and he sees a cabin, an old abandoned cabin, and it has holes up near the roof. And so he figures, wait a minute. If there are holes in an abandoned cabin, I'll bet there are birds that have gone in through those holes. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take a flashlight. I'm going to get up onto that ledge, and then... I'm going to turn that light on. It will stun the birds. I'll grab them, and I'll keep them for uh, our collection. And so, here the story goes. Sure enough, I snapped on the flash. And, sure enough, there was a great beating and feathers flying. But instead of my having them, they, or rather he, had me. He had my hand, that is, and for a small hawk, not much bigger than my fist, he was doing all right. I heard him give one short metallic cry when the light went on, and my hand descended on the bird beside him. After that, he was busy with his claws and his beak sunk into my thumb. He was a sparrow hawk and a fine young male in the prime of life. I was sorry not to catch the pair of them, but as I dripped blood and folded his wings carefully, holding him by the back so that he wouldn't strike again, I had to admit, the two of them might have been more than I could have handled under the circumstances. The little fellow had saved his mate by diverting me. And that was that. He was born to it and made no outcry now, resting in my hand hopelessly, but peering toward me in the shadows behind the lamp with a fierce, almost indifferent glance. He neither gave nor expected mercy, and something out of the high air passed from him to me, stirring a faint embarrassment. Puts the bird in a box. Awakens the next morning. He says, okay, we'll make the cage today. He goes out onto the grassy slope of that mountain. He looks around. Where is that mate? Is she anywhere? There's no sign. Obviously, she is gone for good. And on an impulse now, he takes the mail out of the box. And I'll pick it up in his words. He lay limp in my grasp, and I could feel his heart pound under the feathers. But he only looked beyond me and up. I saw him look that last look away beyond me into a sky so full of light that I could not follow his gaze. I suppose I must have had an idea then of what I was going to do, but I never let it come into consciousness. I just reached over and lay that hawk on the grass. He lay there a long minute without hope, unmoving, his eyes still fixed on that blue vault above him. 
it must have been that he was already so far away in heart that he never felt the release from my hand. He never even stood. He just lay with his breast against the grass. In the next second, after that long minute, boom, he was gone. Like a flicker of light, he had vanished with my eyes full on him, but without actually seeing a hinting wing beat, he was gone straight into that towering emptiness of light and crystal that my eyes could barely bear to penetrate. For another long moment, there was silence. I could not see him. The light was too intense. Then from far up somewhere, a cry came ringing down. I was young then and had seen little of the world, but when I heard that cry, my heart turned over. It was not the cry of the hawk I had captured, for by shifting my position against the sun, I was now seeing further up, straight out of the sun's eye, where she must have been soaring restlessly above us for untold hours, hurdled his mate. And I saw them both now. He was rising to meet her, and far up, ringing from peak to peak of the summits over us, came a cry of such unutterable and ecstatic joy that it sounds down across the years and tingles among the cups on my quiet breakfast table. Wow. What did we sing just a moment ago? Charles Wesley's words. Soar we now. What? Where Christ has led, following our exalted head. Made like him, like him we rise. Ours the cross, the grave, the skies. Hallelujah. I tell you what, ladies and gentlemen, Christ promises. He promises. Ours the cross, ours the grave, and ours the skies. You know what? It is a shame that we sing that hymn only once every year. It's one of my favorites. we got to sing it again. I want you to sing that fourth stanza with everything unleashed inside of you in your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Open that hymnal. Let's sing it at the top of our lungs to our risen Savior. Hymn 166, Christ the Lord, hallelujah, is risen today.
And now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit through the risen Christ. Amen.